Well, welcome to West Hills. It is so good to have you with us. If you're newer here, my name is Will Duvall. I'm the lead pastor, and uh, it's truly a blessing to be with God's people on Sundays. This morning is week nine in our 11-part series covering the essentials of Christianity as reflected in our church's statement of faith. And our topic together for this morning is the ordinances. And immediately some of you are wondering, the ordinances. What in the world is an ordinance? You're telling me there's only 11 core doctrines in Christianity, and I've never even heard of one of them. Well, you may have grown up referring to them as the sacraments, but that sounded too Catholic for some of us in uh, evangelical circles. And so we renamed them ordinances. Indeed, the idea of ordinances in Protestant Christianity grew out of the Roman Catholic tradition of recognizing seven sacraments of, or outward visible means of an inward and invisible grace. But 500 years ago, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and the other reformers came along and said, wait a minute, God's grace doesn't come to us through a ritual. It already came to us through a person, through Jesus. And moreover, five of these seven so-called sacraments weren't even established or ordained by Jesus himself. And so the reformers took that Catholic list of seven, and they got rid of confirmation, penance, the anointing of the sick, holy orders, and marriage, and that left them with baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's how we got them. Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25, this is my body, this is my blood, which is for you, Jesus said. Do this in remembrance of me. Two texts that should be very familiar to those of you here at West Hills. Read them every week. And so an ordinance then is a rite or ritual ordained by Christ for his church. Now, with that definition in place, I need to make a few big disclaimers on this topic right up front this morning. For starters, I will just confess that this message was by far the one that I least look forward to preaching in this series for two reasons. Number one, because I think it's the core doctrine on which we have the most disagreement as a church. And number two, it is probably the doctrine around which I see the most disobedience in the church. We disagree as a church about the nature and practice specifically of baptism. West Hills is a credo-baptist church. Credo means creed or belief. We baptize, therefore, upon a believer's profession of faith here. By contrast, pedo-baptism, pedo is the prefix meaning child, is the baptizing of infants. And we have Many regulars here at West Hills, the last time I counted, probably in the neighborhood of 20 of y'all, who agree with every other tenant in our church's statement of faith, other than this one, that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of the one who professes faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we define baptism here. But we've got a good handful of people who worship here regularly, brothers and sisters, active participants in our faith community who do not believe that that is what baptism is. We disagree on it. And then secondly, we've got a whole other category of folks here who do believe that that's what baptism is, and yet you have not yet been baptized. Some of you here 
this morning agree biblically that that's what baptism is. The immersion in water of the one who professes faith in Jesus. And, yet, and maybe you've even personally declared, professed faith in Jesus, but you have not yet been obedient to Jesus' clear command in Scripture to be baptized as a public declaration of your faith in him. Now, disclaimer number two. And so far, um, I think half the elders heard me say this in the first service, and they didn't fire me yet. So I'm going to roll the dice again. Um, Disclaimer number two is that I personally do not believe that our church's position on baptism should be one of our 11 most essential doctrines as a church. Now, let me be clear, Dale, (laughs) that I do personally believe our church's position on baptism. I believe that baptism is the immersion in water of the one who professes faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that. I'm a Baptist. And I also believe that baptism is incredibly important, as I will unapologetically preach and call you to in this sermon this morning. If you are not yet baptized, I'm going to call you to that today. But I also acknowledge my brothers and sisters here at West Hills who understand baptism differently than I do, that many of y'all, now not all of you, let me make that clear too, some of you are really credo-baptists in disguise who are just too embarrassed to share your faith story, you're too embarrassed to stand up and talk in front of people, you're too embarrassed to get wet in front of people. It's really not that funny. It's disobedience to the Lord. Or you're too scared of offending your pedo-baptist parents who sprinkled you as an infant. And you've since then come to understand Baptist, baptism in the credo-baptist manner. And you're maybe convicted that, no, I haven't maybe been properly baptized. Maybe I should be. And yet you fear man more than you fear God. You fear what your parents think more than what God thinks. There are lots of bad reasons that some of you have not yet been baptized. But I also know that there are some of you who have diligently and prayerfully studied the scriptures, and you are convinced that as a church, we ought to be baptizing babies. And that your own baptism as a baby was a true baptism. And I just want to be clear this morning, that while I disagree with your assessment, I do sympathize with you. And I understand your position, and I respect it. That I can sit in my study, as I did this past week, in preparation for this sermon, And I can listen to John MacArthur make an hour-long case for credo-baptism, and I can be completely convinced. But then I can turn around and listen to R.C. Sproul debate him at the very same conference and make the hour-long case for pedo-baptism, and I can think to myself, well, he does make some good points. Because I've read both John Piper and Tim Keller on the issue, and here's the conclusion I've come to. Those guys are all infinitely smarter, more biblically literate, godly men than I am, and probably you are, and they are all trying their best to be faithful to Scripture, and the only thing that I'm completely convinced of at the end of the day is that this is a point on which intelligent, God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians can and do disagree, and that's okay with me. To me, the essentials are the things that 
all true Christians, Baptists and Presbyterians, Lutherans, Methodists, all true Christians, Piper, Keller, MacArthur, Sproul, me, you, that all of us can agree on, should agree on. And I'm also completely convinced that we've got bigger fish to fry as a 21st century American church, that there are people literally dying all around us every day and going to hell for eternity, and meanwhile, we're too busy debating whether to sprinkle or dunk each other to notice. And I'll just tell you, if R.C. Sproul, God rest his soul, or Tim Keller wanted to join this church as a member, and we decided as elders as we would have to under our current church constitution, that they had not been properly baptized and therefore they could not join this church. i just tell you this much. It would be one of the other elders having that conversation with them. Because I'm not going to RC, I'm not going to Keller, and explaining to him why they cannot be a member at West Hills. I'm Baptist, but I ain't that Baptist. <laughs> and as I've already mentioned, I don't have to posit hypothetical examples. Because some of you here this morning are in that same boat. You've been here for 10, 20, 30 years, but you're not a member. You can't be. And I just want you to hear me say this morning that if you have come to the Baptist understanding of baptism, you should be baptized. But if in your heart of hearts, in your study, you are a Pado baptist while I disagree with your understanding of baptism, I do not think that it's a covenant sign intended for the babies of Christian parents. And yet, it is not an issue worth separating the church over, in my opinion. It is not worth dividing over. And it honestly breaks my heart as your pastor that you cannot be members, officially members, of this church. Now, since I haven't been fired yet, let me go even further and say that not only do I believe that as Baptists we are often guilty of making too much of our interpretation of baptism, but I think that as Christians in general we have made too much of the very idea of the ordinances in the first place. My even more basic beef with this notion that we've elevated as a church our statement on baptism and the Lord's Supper to the status of essential core doctrine is that I think the identification of those two particular ordinances as such is actually a bit arbitrary. I already told you, historically speaking, where they came from. We ended up with those two ordinances by process of elimination from a, a leftover, completely arbitrary list of seven sacraments made up by the Catholic Church. Now, please don't mishear me. Again, I believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are both vitally important rites ordained by Christ for his church. And so I do accept them both as indispensable ordinances for the church. But do you know what else Jesus explicitly ordained for his church? Repentance and confession, Matthew 4.17. And we've even ritualized that here at West Hills. We corporately confess sin every, every Sunday in obedience to Christ's command. What about prayer? Jesus commanded prayer, Matthew 5.44, 7.7, 9.38. And we've ritualized prayer too. We pray no less than three times per Sunday worship service here, at a minimum. And speaking of worship, Jesus ordained that too, John 4.24. 
We do it ritually together every Sunday. In the very same breath that Jesus commanded us to, to baptize people, Matthew 28, 19, he also ordered two other instructions as well. Make disciples and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. So here's what I'm getting at. Here's my question for us as a church. Why aren't discipleship, teaching, worship, prayer, confession, and all 49 of Jesus' other explicit commands and the four canonical gospel accounts, why aren't those elevated to the equal status of, of ordinance for the church? I mean, if you've got a good answer to that, I've never heard one. You can come up and preach the rest of the sermon because clearly you, you have a greater exalted uh, estimation of, of the, these two particular ordinances in, in comparison to all the others than I do. I've never heard a good answer. The historical observation about the ordinance's roots in Catholicism is actually the most generous explanation. The more cynical answer to the question is that baptism and the Lord's Supper are easy. It's relatively pretty easy to get dunked. Some of y'all won't even do that. But it's pretty easy to just go and, and get in the water once. It's really easy to eat a cracker and drink some grape juice every week. You know what's not easy? Evangelizing, making disciples, loving our enemies, forgiving those who have wronged us, selling all your possessions and giving them to the poor. There's a lot of things that Jesus tells us to do explicitly in the Gospels that are much harder. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are vitally important, but so is every exhortation that came from Christ's lips. But because baptism and the Lord's Supper are also essential ordinances of Jesus for his church, None of us dispute that. Let's spend the remainder of our time together examining what God's word has to say about them. But first, let us go to the Lord once again in prayer together. Our Father, I confess and repent where I have been guilty of making too much or too little of any of your ordinances. Jesus, you tell us that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And yet, Father, we confess this morning, all too often we are so guilty of making light of your word, of your commands, of taking them as suggestions, instead of binding ordinances for our good. You don't just arbitrarily boss us around, but you're a good and loving Father who has our best interest in heart and who knows what is best for us better than we do. And yet in our sin, we follow our own ways. And so God, I pray that this morning you might convict us of sin, but you might also encourage us by the grace and the love and the mercy that we find in your son Jesus, who really has opened up a new life, a different, better life to us, that we can walk in your commands, and your commands are not burdensome. Yours is the law of love, because you love us. And so Father, specifically now as we turn our attention to your ordinances, your commands of baptism and the Lord's Supper, would you give us hearts of repentance and faith to believe what you say in your word.
about your ordinances. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at the single most important passage of Scripture on each of these two ordinances in turn. First, we'll consider baptism. The most crucial passage, I think, in the New Testament on baptism is Romans chapter 6, verses 1-4, through where Paul outlines for us the what, how, and why of baptism. That's what we're going to look at here in Romans 6, the what, how, and why of baptism. Number one, first, the what. That's what you see in your bulletins, by the way, three-point outline for the two ordinances each. The what of baptism. What is baptism? According to verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 6, baptism is symbolically dying to sin. Here is that passage in its entirety. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul says that as believers, through our baptism, we have now died to our sin. Verse 2. Now, for me... As a credo Baptist, that is about all the evidence that I need to be convinced that baptism is meant only for believers, those who really have put their sin to death by repenting and coming to Jesus for forgiveness, and that the best mode of baptism is by immersion, by being fully submerged underwater, because when you die, you don't just get sprinkled with some dirt. You don't just get some dirt poured over your head. You get buried. And that's what we're symbolizing in baptism. In fact, Romans 6, 1-4 makes such a strong case for credo-baptism that in order to be a paedo-baptist and still respect the scriptures, you have to read Paul's words here as referring not to our water baptism, but to our spirit baptism. See, in the New Testament, there's two kinds of baptisms. There's spirit baptism, when the Holy Spirit comes into a believer's heart and cleanses him or her of all their sin, And then subsequently, water baptism, which is a visible external symbol meant to represent that internal spiritual reality. This much is clear from a text like 1 Peter 3, verse 21, where Peter says, baptism saves you. Wait for it. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, our Catholic and Church of Christ friends, they stop reading halfway through that verse, right? And they say, "Uh aha, Peter just, just declared it. Baptism saves you. Baptism must be necessary for salvation. If that was true, Jesus lied, by the way, to the thief on the cross who didn't come down from the cross, as far as we can tell, and get baptized before he died and went to be with Jesus in paradise that very day. So our Catholic and Church of Christ friends miss Peter's note, his his qualification in the second half of the verse, that the kind of baptism that saves us is not the kind that removes dirt from our bodies. In other words, not water baptism, that there's nothing saving about 
getting up here in the baptistry with me and, and, and going under the water. That is just the sign, the symbol of an internal spiritual baptism that is necessary for salvation. Jesus said in John 3, 5, unless you've been born again by water and the Spirit, water in that case, meaning you, you came out of your mom, her water broke, so everybody's born once, but you've got to be born twice. You've got to be born by the Spirit. You can't be saved. You can't inherit the kingdom of God. That kind of baptism is necessary for salvation. Not the cleansing of our body, but the cleansing of our conscience through the resurrection. And according to Romans 6, baptism is only fitting then for those who have died to their sin through their faith in Christ. This is the New Testament pattern, clearly, over and over and over again in Scripture. We repent, we turn from sin, we die to our sin in Christ, and then we are baptized in response as a public declaration of our faith. Acts 2, 38 and 41, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So those who received his word were baptized. Doesn't say everyone who heard the word. Those who received his word, believers, were baptized. Acts 8, verse 12, when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, then they were baptized. Acts 18, verse 8, many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Acts 22, 16, and now, why do you wait, Paul says, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. That's what baptism is. That's what it symbolizes, dying to sin, to live to Christ. Now, that's why you don't see a single baby get baptized anywhere in the Bible. The strongest case for infant baptism is to connect it theologically to the Old Testament sign of the covenant, circumcision, but that's not a connection made by Scripture itself anywhere. And even if it was, the Bible explicitly tells us in both the Old and New Testaments, both Jeremiah 31, 32 and Hebrews chapter 7 through 10, that the new covenant is not like the old one. Something fundamentally different and better is here in Jesus. There's no connection. And so I don't know why we would expect the new covenant sign, baptism, to function in the same way that the old covenant sign, circumcision, did in the first place. So, that's my credo baptist uh, spiel for you. Now, number two, if that's what baptism really is, if baptism is really symbolically dying to your sin, and therefore only uh, to be done by people who have done that, believers, on their profession of faith, then how does that work? In what way does getting dunked underwater portray my spiritual death? And Paul answers that in verses 3 and the first half of verse 4. He says, it's through our identification with Christ's own death. He says we've been baptized into Christ Jesus, into his death. In other words, you could make up your mind this morning that you are done with your sin, that you are tired of living in your old ways, being enslaved to your old habits, your, your selfishness, your greed, your lust, pride, anger, gossip, addiction, whatever your sin struggle is, probably all the above, that you want so much more out of life than that, that you're sick of living that way and you're ready to finally die to your sin and start afresh. That's great. Only one problem. You can't. You can't do it. 
on your own, you are completely powerless over your own sin, to kill your own sin, to live in any other way but a life filled with sin. That's Romans 3. You're totally depraved to your core. Ephesians 2, 5 puts it maybe even more plainly. Paul says you were dead in your sins. You know what a dead person is good at? Staying dead, actually. That's, that's about all a dead person can accomplish, is to stay dead. Friends, that was you. That was me. We were dead in our trespasses. But Paul goes on in that beautiful passage to say that while we were dead in our trespasses, God has made us alive together with Christ. God did it, and he did it through Christ, with Christ. Paul says here in Romans 6, 4, that we were buried with Christ by baptism into his death. And then he goes on in verses 5 and 6 and says, we've been united with him in a death like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Galatians 2.20 puts it this way, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who now lives in me. Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so baptism then is identifying, it's uniting yourself with Christ in his death and his resurrection, we're going to see, so as to claim his promised forgiveness for sin and his promised resurrection power over your sin as your own for yourself. That's what baptism is. And water baptism is simply but substantively proclaiming that identification with Christ publicly, externally. If you're a believer, your union with Christ happened the very moment you first repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus by faith. It's kind of like for those of us here who are married, right? When did you get married? You got married, technically, officially, in God's eyes. The moment you had signed the dotted line, probably before the ceremony, and the moment you stood up at the altar and said, I do, you were married. But what did you do next? That's right. You gave each other these rings. Why? As a symbol of your covenant commitment, right? As a symbol. The ring doesn't make you married any more than the water makes you saved, makes you united with Christ. But it is an important, powerful symbol that serves to mark you, to publicly identify you as now belonging to Christ. People see this. They know I belong to Polly. She belongs to me. They see you go in the water and they know you belong to Christ. Lastly, on baptism, we've got the, the what, symbolically dying to sin, and the how, by identifying oneself with Christ in his death. Now Paul ends with the why. Why is it so essential to die to your sin, to live for Christ? He answers in the second half of verse 4, in order to be raised to new life in him. You die to your sin through identifying with Christ's own death in order to be raised to new life in him. 
He says, we were buried therefore with Christ by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. And he continues in verses 5-8, through eight, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his as well. If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Jesus said in John 12 that a seed has to fall to the earth and die in order to be reborn as a giant tree that can bear much fruit. He told this as a picture of what he was about to do for us. To die and then be resurrected for the sake of bearing much fruit many disciples. That's what his death did for us. And that's what our death to sin, personally, is supposed to accomplish as well. We die to sin in order to produce fruit, new life, newness of life. So when you got baptized, those of you who have been baptized, you didn't stay under the water too long, did you? I hope. Unless you're really mean to the pastor, right? We hold some of y'all under a little longer. You didn't stay under too long. No, just as quickly as you were plunged down into the water to symbolize your death to sin with Christ, so too you were lifted back out of the water, new, washed, cleansed, visibly changed. And that water baptism, again, it symbolizes your internal spirit baptism, that if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, he is indeed now a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. That's what we symbolize. Something new, cleansed, pure has come. Colossians 2.12 puts it this way. Having been buried with him, with Christ, in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. And so baptism is dying to sin by identifying with Christ his substitutionary death in our place, in order that we might be raised to new life in him. And Jesus ordained our ritual immersion in water as an imperative symbol and a powerful public witness to our new life in Christ to be practiced until he comes again in his name. So, I'm going to warn you Right now, up front, because I, I don't, I'm not trying to spring anything on anybody this morning. I'm not trying to, to trick or emotionally manipulate anyone this morning. But I'm just going to warn you right now that I'm going to end our worship service together this morning by inviting you, by exhorting you, those of you who have trusted in Christ by faith but have not yet been obedient to follow him in the ordinance of baptism as he has commanded you to. I'm going I'm to encourage you, challenge you today to be baptized. We had, uh, we're, I had one baptism like planned in the first service, and I brought five towels, uh, thinking she's going to bring her own towel, and maybe we'll have four. You know, that's like, I'm thinking, uh, I- I'm an optimist, so I thought maybe we'll have, you know, one or two people spontaneously come forward to be baptized. And we had five people come at nine o'clock. Praise God. And I ran out of towels. Yeah. <laughs> and I ran out of towels, and God miraculously provided one in the, in the hallway on the way up. 
because God provides. But maybe that's you this morning. You have not yet been baptized. Maybe this morning you, you, you've, you're convinced and you're convicted, you're cut to your heart this morning that what you thought was your baptism as an infant was actually just your dedication as a child and that coming forward today would not be in any way a repudiation of what your parents did for you, but, but if anything, a fulfillment of that pledge that they made to raise you in the love and admonition of the Lord, that you need to be baptized in obedience to Christ's command. So I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that here in about 20 minutes. But first, how about our second ordinance? We could and should spend way more than, than 20 minutes on both of these. I actually uh, preached separate messages on both these ordinances back in the spring of 2019 when we preached together, walked together through the Gospel of Mark. If you want to dig that out of the sermon archives and give those a listen. But perhaps the most significant text on this issue of the Lord's Supper is 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34, the middle section of which you'll be very familiar with, where Paul outlines the who, what, and how of the Lord's Supper for us. So we, we had the, the what, the how, and the why of baptism, and now Paul's going to give us the who, what, and how of the Lord's Supper. First, the who. Who is the Lord's Supper for? He starts with who it's for. It's a meal for the gathered, unified church. The gathered, unified church. Paul writes in verses 17 through 22, and then in verses uh, 33 and 34, he says, I do not commend you, Corinthians, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together then, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Paul puts three stipulations on who gets to eat there. It's the gathered, unified church. First, it's those who are gathered. Paul uses the phrase, when you come together, five times there in those six verses. That means that if you're joining us virtually from home, via the live stream this morning, glad you are, it's better than nothing, but you don't pull out the saltines and the welches here in 20 minutes when we take communion together because you're not communing with us. Communion is not just about communing with God, it is that, but it's more than that. It's about communing together as a spiritual family as a body of believers, as the church, we have to be gathered. We have to come together, Paul says. And so on that note, I need to apologize too as your pastor because I missed the mark on this back in April of 2020 when everything was starting to shut down. The pandemic, we held a virtual at-home Good Friday service and I ended that service by encouraging you all to take the Lord's Supper at home. Whatever you've got in the pantry, some goldfish, you know, some orange juice, whatever. We're all just going to take that on our own. And if you participated, it felt bizarre and not at all the same. 
didn't it? And rightfully so. Because God designed this meal specifically for his gathered people. And I hope that, if nothing else, we have all gained such greater appreciation for the importance and the gift of the gathered church these past 18 or 20 months. Second, not only do we have to gather, but we've got to be unified. I mean, you can come together in the same room, and, and Paul says, that doesn't make it the Lord's Supper. We've got to be unified. Why is he so mad here? He says in verse 18, because there are divisions among you. Specifically, verse 21, I guess they're being divided over how hungry they are. I mean, they're being selfish. Some of them are stuffing their faces. They're hogging the wine bottle to the total exclusion of others in the church. And so some folks are getting left out completely, going hungry while others are getting drunk. And Paul admonishes them. In verse 33, he says, wait for one another. What are you doing? He goes so far in verse 20 as to claim that if they don't wait for one another, if they're not unified, if they're all just doing their own thing, he says, I don't know what you're doing. Whatever you're doing, you can call it what you want, but it's not the Lord's Supper. That is not the Lord's Supper. Because by definition, the Lord's Supper is the, the meal of the gathered, unified church. You can eat a cracker and drink as much grape juice as you want. You can call it whatever you want. But if it's not done in unity with the Lord's people, it ain't the Lord's Supper. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper is for the gathered, unified church. This is a meal specifically for the church. Next April, we're going to take a group of folks down to the Together for the Gospel Conference in Louisville, Kentucky for the week. It's, it's, it's an amazing event. Thousands of church leaders gather there from all over the world. Please come join us. But they won't serve communion there. Why not? Because that's a conference. That's not church. When Thad takes the youth group to summer camp with YM360 next June, they won't take communion. That's a summer camp. That's not church. What is church? Go back and listen to last week's message. I don't have time to re-preach it to you this morning. But I will tell you this. I will tell you the most important, most defining mark of the church. I will remind you. The church is made up, exclusively made up, of born-again believers in Jesus. That's who the church is. St. Augustine 5th century church father, he had this whole thing where he's wrestling through, especially back then, institutionalized state church. You had to go to church. Everyone did. And he's wrestling with, man, I go and see these people on, on Sundays, and they just sure seem like they're spiritually dead. And then he realized it's because not everyone who is the church is the true church. Jesus said as much. He said there's going to come a day when the Lord will come and separate the wheat from the tares. Those who have been faking from the real believers. And we've got both here this morning. I'm in a, a group this size. I know we do. <laughs> and, and if you're a tear, if you're here and, and you're exploring or, or you're faking, either, we're glad you're here. This is, this is the right place for you to be with God's actual people. But I want to call you to more than that this morning. I want to call you to become one of God's children. Be adopted this morning. 
Repent and believe in Jesus and you can be saved. Today can be the, the day of your salvation. But if you haven't been yet, if you, if you haven't been adopted into the family of God, if you're not yet a member of God's family, then the Lord's Supper is not for you. Pre-COVID, when I tried to move us as a church away from passing the communion trays, I was prophetic. I knew that that was a bad idea before the virus even came. You know, we're all touching the same. But it, it wasn't even so much about that for me. I'm not going to get into the theological issue, the reasons why it's, it's better to come forward and receive the bread and cup instead. But one of the objections that I heard to, to that, to coming forward, was that it might make people feel exposed, left out, people who were left remaining in their seats when the rest of us came up and came forward. And I directed those objectors to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 19, where Paul unequivocally states, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. The Lord's Supper, friends, is inherently divisive. Namely, it is meant to divide those who belong to the Lord from those who do not. And those are the only two factions in the world that really matter, by the way, eternally matter. Not Republican or Democrat, not American and other not Chiefs fans and whatever, right? It's saved and unsaved. Those are the only two, two camps. Believer, unbeliever. And the Lord's table is intended in part to be the dividing line. And so parents, just exhort you, parents, do not let your kids receive communion if they are not believers. That's not cute. It's blasphemy. If they have not been baptized, if they have not officially joined the family of faith yet, they do not belong at the table yet. The biblical order is clear. You repent, you believe, you're baptized, and then you observe the Lord's Supper. So, that's who it's for. But what is it? What is the Lord's Supper? Number two, it's a meal for remembering and proclaiming Christ's death. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's a meal designed to remember and to proclaim Christ's death. Verses 23 through 26. Very familiar. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this if, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper then is a visible remembrance of Jesus' sacrificial death in our place on the cross. When you eat that cracker, you should be remembering Christ's body which was torn to pieces as you crunch it, <laughs> torn to pieces for you. His blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. We are meant to be reminded of his sacrifice every single time we eat it and to feel the weight of our sin, the cost that he had to pay to redeem us, to buy us back. 
to right relationship with the Father, to feel the weight of our sins so that we can feel the weight of his love and his mercy and grace for us. That's what we remember. But not only is there this past dimension to the meal, remembrance, there's also a future uh, element and importance to it as well. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again, until Jesus returns in the future. And until he returns, this meal is meant to sustain us, to spiritually symbolically sustain us not physically you you can't live off of a little cracker it's not even a cracker I don't know what these things are you can't live off that you know styrofoam and the nasty grape juice you can't live off of that all week long right but spiritually what we're proclaiming what we're symbolizing it's a symbol what we're symbol proclaiming is that while we live out the days of our exile on this fallen earth until the Lord calls us home or he returns in glory that Christ is enough for us that Christ sustains us that he's sufficient for us he nourishes us and keeps us going day by day and that we have hope for the future because Jesus suffered the greatest horror imaginable in the past. And so we look forward even as we look back together at the Lord's table. Lastly, how do we eat and drink it? What it is, who it's for, how do we eat and drink it? Verses 27 through 32 with self-examination and with self-discipline. It says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person therefore examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have even died. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. There's so much there to unpack. I just leave it at this. Because the Lord's Supper is a sacred meal, it is the Lord's meal, we don't eat it in an unworthy manner. Your mom made you wash your hands before you came to to the dinner table growing up, right? We wash our hearts before we come to the Lord's table. What does it mean to eat in an unworthy manner? I think it means to eat with unrepentant sin in your heart. The call to follow Christ is a call to die to our sins, not just once at baptism. But Jesus says, you've got to be ready to die to your sins daily, daily to follow me. And the Lord's Supper then provides us with this weekly accountability, check-in point opportunity to examine ourselves to ensure that there is no hidden sin there that we're holding back and holding on to in our flesh. And if there is, if there's any sin that we find there as we examine ourselves, then we are called to discipline ourselves to put that sin to death at the foot of the cross of Jesus so that we don't have to be disciplined, judged by the Lord instead. And so maybe for you this morning, Unrepentant sin looks like the sin of unbelief. The greatest sin of all, the worst sin of all, most severe. The unforgivable sin 
according to Jesus in Mark 3, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit pricks your heart and calls you and says, you're a sinner and you need a Savior, and God is drawing you and you try and squelch that and reject that and reject Him, don't commit that sin. Avoid it this morning by surrendering to Him in faith. Some of you this morning might need to repent of the sin of unbelief and trust in Jesus for the first time this morning and be saved. Maybe for some of you, though, you made that decision to walk with the Lord, to surrender your life to Him in faith years ago. You've been walking with the Lord. Maybe for some of you, your unrepentant sin is your disobedience to, to, to follow his clear command, Jesus' clear command, to be baptized on the profession of your faith. Some of you here this morning might fall into that second category. I'm not necessarily talking to my brothers and sisters who I, you know, I'm going to get emails from this, this week and we'll get coffee and we'll debate. the. I'm not going to debate with you. I don't, I don't really, again, I don't, if you're a pedo-baptism, Baptist, we're glad you're here. You don't have to you know, join the church, and, and we're just glad you're here. But I'm talking to the Category 2 people. I'm talking to the people who are convinced. You, you're convinced baptism is the immersion in water of those who profess faith, and you've refused to do that in your disobedience. Let's call a spade a spade. That's what it is, disobedience. If that's you this morning, the cry of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, should be your cry. What then is to prevent me from being back? If, if I've been saved, I mean, the only thing standing between me and being in the center of God's will for my life is a little water, and we've got plenty of it right up here. Maybe you've given your life to Christ, you've been baptized, and the sin in your heart this morning is getting impatient snapping at your kids on the way to church this morning. And you need to repent of that and go be reconciled to them. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 5, again, Old Testament worship, you brought a gift to the altar, a sacrifice, and Jesus said, look, your worship here can wait. If, if you've got something with, with a brother or sister in Christ and you need to go apologize, repent, make it right with someone else. We talked about that last week with the church and how important we are to one another because of how important we are to, to God. We're his children. And I said, if you and I aren't, if you don't love my kids, you and I are not going to have a good relationship. And that's how it is with God, right? Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe it's your own kids. You need to go apologize to them before you come to the Lord's table this morning. Maybe it's your wife, your spouse, your husband. Maybe it's your parents, you need to get on the phone. I, I don't know what, what amends you need to make and be reconciled in order to come in a worthy manner with, with no unrepented sin in your heart, with a clean heart, clean conscience this morning to the Lord's table to eat this sacred meal with God's people together. I don't know your sin, but what I do know is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God but we are justified freely by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is the redemption that we have the privilege and the joy of illustrating through baptism and through the Lord's Supper here together as a church.